listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 18th of October. And on the programme today, we did a deep dive into all the tech stories coming out of the Jitex conference this week. And my goodness me, we had a lot to cover. We started by discussing floating police cars and robocops, plus virtual police officers with Major General Khaled Nasser al-Razuki. Now, he's from Dubai Police, where he is Director of the General Department of Artificial Intelligence. Then we found out how Dubai Customs is using AI to improve its remote inspections. And we discussed a cutting-edge multi-cancer early detection test that's been created by a Dubai-based company called Detectiome. Meanwhile, Time Out has launched their list of the coolest neighbourhoods for 2023, but there's nowhere in the Middle East on their list. We reviewed it with Sarah Pickford from Travel Counselor and got her recommendations for our region. Plus, we actually looked at two farming stories again on the programme today. In part, we looked at the developing technology being used in camel farms by the team at Camelicious, a camel farm based in Dubai. And as animal rights activists are up in arms over a proposed octopus farm in Gran Canaria, we find out why they're looking to ban it. Yep, you're listening to The Agenda and we have a lot to pack into the next hour. So many interesting tech topics. Uh, It's all down to Jitex. I mean, the traffic might be annoying, but you certainly get a lot of news out of it. Uh, And the stories are all sort of just really good fun. So so it always makes for a good week of radio. And the latest innovation launch comes from Dubai Police, who are showcasing a floating car for amphibious policing. That's at their stand. They've also got a Robocop patrol vehicle with facial recognition and a virtual officer called Amna, who can speak in English and Arabic and answer questions thanks to artificial intelligence. Um, Joining me earlier to talk through the tech was Major General Khaled Nasser al-Razuki. He's Director of the General Department for Artificial Intelligence for Dubai Police. And I basically started by asking him, you know, what what are the main things that they are showcasing at JITEX this year? In uh, Dubai Police, uh, we are always participating uh, in JITEX Global, which has come to the, the commitment of the under directive of uh, His Excellency Lieutenant General Abdullah Khalifa Al Murray, the Commander in Chief of Dubai Police. It's to highlight the significant police achievements that uh, contribute in enhancing security and safety and uh, striving to ensure the happiness of the community members. And as you know, that we have more than 200 nationalities who are living in Dubai. So in that area, we always find what is the latest technologies and innovation that uh, serve the people in different channels uh, um, around the clock. So we have introduced a new thing uh, this year. One of them is the uh, new character called Amna. She can talk to you in two languages, Arabic and English, and it's based on artificial intelligence. So whenever you ask her, she's going to reply back to you with the information that she can locate it. The other part, uh, as you know, Dubai is growing and expanding. And as you know, 
we're going to find, you have to find a new way to secure the areas. That's why we have introduced uh, a self-service, a petrol car, which can move across Dubai. It uh, has been uh, loaded with the latest technology, so it can detect uh, wanted people using a facial recognition and even can detect a wanted vehicle by using ENPR, which can recognize the plate numbers. And as you mentioned, it has also built in with a flying drone. All those tools, uh, we want to ensure the safety and the happiness of the people. On the, uh, on the other activities, we have also uh, launched the floated uh, petrol car. Uh, you're going to find that most of the attraction areas uh, on the beaches and, uh, you know, all the sea areas. Well, uh, our police officers are going to cover those areas with using uh, the special equipment. So we're always aiming all kinds of things that to increase the happiness of the people. And we are so open for all kinds of suggestions uh, from our customers. It's really interesting how you're encompassing both land and sea there with sort of different types of craft. I'm very interested, of course, as Director of Artificial Intelligence or the the General Department for Artificial Intelligence at Dubai Police. You really must be at the cutting edge of that digital space. Is artificial intelligence being used to catch criminals here in the UAE? Are, Are there different ways in which you can... Uh, use that computer processing to, to, to catch criminals? Well, actually, as you know, artificial intelligence, we have launched uh, the strategy of artificial intelligence by police since 2018. And we are continue uh, achieving our goals. Uh, we have covered uh, several, uh, seven pillars. One of them is uh, for uh, the uh, criminal investigation. So we injected all our system with artificial system tool, which it can help our police officers detect all the wanted uh, people using our tools. And as you know, we do have the cameras. Uh, we have connected all the CCTV cameras across Dubai. We have over monitoring uh, the vehicle. So the artificial intelligence tool, it uh, helps us in our uh, daily job to detect the wanted people right away and right time. And uh, even we have used the artificial intelligence in our daily operation, even for all uh, for the c- crowd management. As you know, that why we have a lot of events secured. One of them, uh, remember the uh, Expo 2020, we have uh, managed millions of visitors. And you won't find the police officers, or, I mean, uh, walking or patrolling the areas. We're all using all the, the, those kind of tools where it can detect and alert us right away. The other part of, excuse me, and the other part of the, uh, it's also we uh, patrolling the areas and the vehicles so we can know the behavior of the drivers, uh, even we can detect or predict the accident in future based on historical data. That is very cool indeed. I'm sorry I interrupted you earlier. I'm enthusiastic to find out more about how the facial recognition systems work. So how many faces can you process 
quickly. You know, I mean, I know that this new RoboCop can process faces, but with the cam- with the technology on the cameras around the city, can you literally yeah. f- facially profile every person that goes past? Is it that quick? Yes, actually, we have uh, enormous uh, back-end system with uh, the highest uh, GPU and processing. So it can process all the images uh, within seconds across uh, Dubai. And imagine uh, the number of visitors and the shopping malls and the crowd areas. So we can detect all kind of activities uh, across uh, the city. Do you imagine that policing in the future will become remote in in many different ways? For example, this, this RoboCop patrol vehicle, there's now yeah. no need for policemen to go out on the roads because you can manage that, you know, through artificial intelligence from a, a base. Do you think that we could see many more of these patrolling the city and that that would reduce the amount of manpower required? Yes, actually, we have did it in many ways. Uh, we are flying uh, drones, which have covered the areas. We have what we call a smart police station. So we have introduced more than 23 police, smart police station. You won't find any police officers there. We have introduced uh, the uh, mobile uh, petrol cars. We have in, uh, integrated with all the CCTVs. So instead of hiring new stuff just to do their daily job, we have shifted them to work at the back, back office job and monitoring remotely. So even the people uh, won't know that there is a police monitoring them or monitoring their any kind of misbehavior analysis on all kind of issues. That's why whenever anybody traveling to Dubai or UAE, they know that it's a safe country and a safe city. And this is a very effective way to increase the economy and the tourism rate in the country. Yeah, it must make you feel incredibly proud when you see, I mean, I don't know whether you check it out yourself, but there's endless sort of videos on TikTok and Instagram on social media uh, where people sort of deliberately leave valuable items and then and then walk away. I, I know that Dubai Police has discouraged this sort of activity, but the fact is, is that you, we do use our mobile phones to save tables in food halls. And we do, if you leave your handbag somewhere, you can go back three hours later and it will be exactly where you left. It. You know, Dubai really right. does have a reputation for being one of the safest cities in the world. That must make you yes. feel very proud. Well, we are working day and night just to increase the happiness. We want to Dubai to achieve to be the safest city in the world. This is our goal. Major General Khaled Nasser al-Razuki, their director of the General Department for Artificial Intelligence for Dubai Police. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Fascinating just now to hear about Dubai Police's virtual officer. They're calling her Amna. Uh, she can speak English and Arabic, and it's all thanks to artificial intelligence. If you are heading down to Jitex today, uh, you can probably go and meet her. She is there at the stand looking uh, very intelligent indeed, it's fair to say. Uh, we're going to keep on tech for the next 10 minutes on the programme, actually, uh, because Dubai Customs is also exhibiting at Jitex, and they are showcasing no less than six new strategies.
bodies, all designed to improve their capabilities on both land and sea borders. There is one that actually in particular caught our eye and and it's called the Remote Inspection Strategy. Joining us now uh, to talk through that tech is Sami Issa. He's project manager of the Remote Inspections Project for Dubai Customs, also manager of the Inspection Centre at Dubai Logistics City. Sami, thank you so much for joining me on the line. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you. Lovely to have you with us. Tell me a little bit more about this new strategy. The, I mean, I imagine to a certain extent it does what it says on the tin. It, it's the remote inspection strategy. But how does it actually work on the ground? Yeah, uh, actually Dubai Custom and Dubai South have uh, started a new project called remote inspection. At Dietrich Global 20, 2023, uh, this project has high-tech tools and AI. Uh, to check goods uh, in warehouse without sending uh, customs uh, officers officer uh, to the location, it make uh, makes uh, the process faster and less expensive. Uh, the project, uh, including special device like thermal camera uh, technology, drones, uh, efficient uh, uh, and special uh, robot uh, to inspect uh, company warehouse uh, very accurately. Uh, this make uh, makes uh, inspection efficient and uh, uh, trouble-free. Uh, tell, me uh, actually, a bit, tell me a bit about the technology. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm overexcited. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about, about the tech. Is it, do you use, because I'm imagining when you go into a warehouse, there's just lots of boxes, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so do you uh, go right. into the boxes or do you have thermal or X-ray? How do you see inside the boxes? Yeah, uh, Actually, uh, we use the robot uh, to inspect uh, uh, the box is uh, already to, uh, going to X-ray before we, we make the robot. Uh, that okay. will make it easy for us. And uh, we, we use it in a warehouse in, uh, in, our, in the company. We choose now uh, IKEA as the pilot for us. The I- IKEA? Yeah. What's that? Uh, IKEA. Uh, oh, IKEA. IKEA store. Sorry, yeah, IKEA sorry. Store. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, IKEA no. Store. That's yeah, just yeah. that's tomato tomato. Don't don't you worry yeah, yeah. that. That's really, yeah. That's really fascinating. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about um, how this uh, how your new remote inspections make use of AI technology. Is there a certain amount of machine learning that's going into this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, the AI it's uh, the history for the declaration and the risk engine. It's uh, learning the inspector what he he will uh, choose for a uh, category. Uh, actually, uh, which risk he have to check. And uh, after he will make uh, the checklist for uh, which uh, risk and he will uh, declare uh, directly for uh, the declaration. Without the company, uh, they uh, loaded the cargo in our inspection uh, same uh, uh, the normal way. This uh, the subject. Can I ask you what it is that you're looking for? So is the reality that criminals try to pack, you know, seemingly yeah. innocuous boxes of furniture, that criminals try to use those boxes to transport illegal stuff into the country? Yeah. Do they sort of stuff yeah. table legs with drugs, for example? Yeah, yeah you are right. Actually, and uh, our pilot for uh, remote inspection, we're choosing that uh, big company, same IKEA. We will also we will use uh, in the future Amazon, 
we we don't uh, use uh, which the, the smuggling company. We have history about it before. That's the, the way we, we what we work in now for the first pilot for the robot inspection area. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So you're still doing the the pilot studies of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, what will be the benefits. We've just been talking to Dubai police about their um, robo controls, uh, which ultimately yes. frees up policemen to do other, you know, more important tasks than just patrolling. Is the reality yeah. that we'll have a similar situation with these remote inspections that you just, you know, you need less manpower ultimately? Yeah, uh, less manpower and process faster and uh, less expensive for the company also. Has it been a big learning curve for you? Have you worked in logistics for a long time? Have you found this move towards using way more tech? Has it been an easy process or, 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 you know, is it quite a big learning curve for everyone? Actually, uh, now the government looking for AI, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, We're going with the the government uh, vision. That's what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yes. And there is really is a a strong push. And I know from way up on high for every single section of the uh, UAE government to uh, and every single department of Dubai as well uh, to embrace innovation and and move things forward. Sammy, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda. Really interesting to hear there about the remote inspection strategy. Sammy Issa, project manager of that project for Dubai Customs, also manager of the inspection centre at Dubai Logistics City really interesting to hear about that pilot study, uh, that pilot project before it actually uh, goes to the market. Uh, And good on IKEA for getting involved um, as well. Uh, Fantastic. Sammy, thank you very much indeed. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Good to have you with us. Uh, Taking a look now at the intersection of tech and health. There's been a bit of a debate as whether it's med tech or health tech. Uh, but the, the main thing is a cutting edge multi-cancer early detection test has been launched in Dubai uh, just in the last few hours, actually. Scientists at Detectium say their Ravonco test is powered by artificial intelligence and it's been designed specifically for the Middle Eastern population's genetic Makeup, really interesting stuff. Uh, basically, the the startup is all part of Tcom Group's In Five incubation ecosystem. So the company really has uh, been growing right here in the UAE. I wanted to find out a little bit more about a multi-cancer early detection test and how it would actually work in practice. And a little earlier, I caught up with Armin Vali. He is the CEO and founder of Detectium. And I started by asking him, how does the test work in, in practical terms? Actually, from patients and doctors' point of view, Revonco, our product, is a simple blood test for multi-cancer early detection that they can do anywhere. However, the science and process uh, behind it isn't that simple. It works based on the fact that when a cell dies in the body, pieces of their DNA get released into the bloodstream uh, called cell-free DNAs. All cells in the body are connected to the bloodstream. So by reading the data from just one blood tube, Uh, we will get a 360 view of the whole body. This approach is called liquid biopsy. So technically our test is liquid biopsy test. So we read all the genetic and epigenetic codes of those cell-free DNAs 
uh, in that blood tube. And Revonco's uh, advanced AI search for patterns uh, to find those needles and uh, that may come from tumor and identify if someone has cancer or not. And if so, uh, it's locate the cancer as well. What led you to create this test specifically for the Middle East? I'm interested that it's made up for, you know, it's created for the population here, for their genetic makeup specifically. Yeah, uh, actually, liquid biopsy tests rely on differentiating between billions of genetic material, whether they come from a tumor or not. So naturally, the genetic background plays a major role in the performance of such tests. Uh, not all liquid biopsy tests are created equal. Uh, it's been shown that a product that is developed for U.S. or European genetics is more than two times less effective when used on non-Western populations like Middle Easterns. So as Middle Eastern, we thought that uh, it's not acceptable to have worse health uh, care just because most medical research today is done on people with white European descent. So the future of medicine isn't that bright for Middle Eastern. Uh, that's why we decided to uh, take the matter into our own hands and develop products that is tailored for the genetic population of Middle East here in Dubai. I mean, that is truly staggering. I hadn't realized that that was a, a situation. I hadn't realized that that the genetics would make certain tests less effective for certain nationalities or people from certain backgrounds. Have you, I mean, this is a standard question, I, I must ask it of nearly every single guest that comes on the agenda at the moment, but have you been using artificial intelligence to develop this test? Has it made it a faster process for you? Actually, uh, AI is the core of liquid biopsy because uh, in that blood tube that I mentioned, there are billions of cell-free DNAs. And in people with uh, early stage cancer uh, without symptoms, only a very small number of those pieces are from cancer cells. So understanding the sheer size of the data is only possible through uh, through AI. It's like looking uh, for a needle in haystack, worst terabytes of data. And Detectium team has built a new class of generative AI models from scratch for liquid biopsy that makes it possible to not only find those needles in a haystack, but also to fine tune the model for each subpopulation, such as uh, genetic population of the Middle East. So AI is essentially is the core of our, pro- our product. So I imagine everyone listening to this is, is sort of desperate to get their hands on it, frankly. What stage are you now as far as bringing this multi-cancer test to market? With today's launch, uh, our product, Revonco, is finally ready and is available for research use only in the UAE, meaning that uh, research hospitals, universities, pharma companies, and organizations can use our product and test it in their their research. But however, individuals have to wait a little bit before Revonco is released for the general public. The next step for us is to perform pilot tests and clinical trials Uh, before registering it with Ministry of Health and Prevention for general public use. And we plan to save the first life in the second half of next year. And after that, scale it up to save thousands more. Fantastic. So once it goes through the research phase, how many years realistically can before, you know, doctors will be using it in their surgeries? Just as a sort of ballpark figure. Uh, Actually, our estimate is around 12 months. 
Oh, brilliant. So it can become a little bit more or less, but it's rough estimate is 12 months. And can this test not just pinpoint what uh, what type of cancer, but can it give you a sense of where that cancer might be or is that a next stage? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's not only detect the cancer, whether you have it or not, uh, it's also locate the cancer as well. I, I mean, so, as uh, sometimes they mistake it with uh, risk profiling, but it's not about the risk. It's uh, about you actually have cancer or not. So it's the diagnostics. Arman Vali there, the CEO and founder of Detectiome. Uh, really interesting to hear about the work that they've been doing there and how artificial intelligence is helping them to develop what, I mean, what will be a really groundbreaking test to this multi-cancer early detection test that we could hopefully see in doctor's surgeries as soon as this time next year. Huge thanks to Armand there for joining us here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. We're going to turn our attention now to something completely different because while you might not have gone away this half term by the very fact that you're listening, I presume that means you're here. Uh, We have got a public holiday fast approaching around the 1st of December. And if you're looking for inspiration, Time Out has launched their list of the coolest neighbourhoods globally for 2023. And I have got only one complaint, and that is that there is nowhere in the Middle East on their list. Let's have a review of what they say. Uh, We've been joined in the studio by travel expert Sarah Pickford. She's from Travel Counselor. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you for having me with you. Really lovely to have you here. Um, Tell me, what did Time Out say? Because they've put out this list and it's quite specific. It's neighbourhoods. It's not cities, is it? It's neighbourhoods. It's neighbourhoods, which I find quite surprising, really. You know, some of these cities are really huge, sprawling areas. I've been to many of them myself. I wouldn't necessarily feel that you need to be in one specific area. Um, So... It's true, you know, I've been to lots of the cities as well, but I'm not sure, for example, whether I've ever been to Brunswick East in Melbourne in Australia. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a really interesting list. I think if I was to go to any of these places in the coming months, now that I've seen this list, I might go and and seek them out to see what's different about them. I think that there is a theme running through them where there may be not central uh, business district or the touristic areas of the city, maybe a little bit um, outside, well connected to the city, maybe harbour front, particularly maybe have a look at um, what it's saying about Copenhagen. So where the locals go. And I think, you know, as we travel a bit more, that is what we're looking for a bit more, a bit less of the touristic places, a bit more where the locals are going to be, where you might find uh, an urban hideaway, a unique hotel or um, a little coffee shop that's not a big international brand. And I think that's really what I'm picking up through the list. So we've got this sense of this move towards authenticity, maybe, in the, in the travel market. Absolutely. Are you seeing that more widely as well? Yes, I think people are wanting to travel much more, you know, rather than just being a tourist, people are wanting to travel. They want to really experience things. So um, experience travel is something that's growing a lot, more so since, you know, unfortunately since the pandemic. But people are wanting to, instead of just going to a fly and flop big brand hotel, they're wanting to go and see 
really seek out culturally what's different about a place to where we currently live or where we come from originally, um, what the locals are doing, what they're eating, um, what they're you know what they're doing in their social time. Um, I think it's really interesting that Tokyo has appeared on the list. You know, Japan's a really popular place, particularly from here in the Middle East, um, and I think. Everybody who goes there has a completely different experience, but there's certain things they're wanting to do whilst they're there. And I think maybe that's the area that's on here, that the neighbourhood, I don't know that I'm saying it right, but Tomigaya, um, I think that's got a, a lot to offer in such a short, a small area that people want to go and experience. So it's sort of bite-sized travel. Some of these, um, let me read out some of them. So you've got Laureles in Medellin. <laughs> And terror. It's honestly, it's famous, isn't it? And I'm still not saying it correctly. Anyway, in Colombia, you got Smithfield in Dublin, in Ireland, Carabanchel in Madrid, in Spain, Cavnen in Copenhagen, in Denmark, Shunwan in Hong Kong, Brunswick East in Melbourne, in Australia, Mid City in New Orleans, Isola in Milan, in Italy. I don't think I've been there. Um, the west of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And then, as you said, Tommy Gaia in Tokyo in Japan. If you've been to any of those places and you like them, uh, please do get in touch with us. You'll notice, though, nothing there in the Middle East. Why do you think that might be, Sarah? Is it just that, you know, the cities haven't developed cool spots yet, do you think? Is it, is it, is it about urbanisation, ultimately? Personally, I think everywhere has got its cool spots. You know, I've been to a number of these places. You know, I've been to Dublin several times. Have I been to Smithfield? Probably. I don't know. I've had some really cool experiences there. So I think every city um, has got that. I think a lot of it will come to, come down to, you know, the population and maybe um, a little trying to get a little bit cheaper maybe than the main um, central business district or tourist area. And so that's where the cool hotspots come from, where younger people maybe that want to go out more, they want to spend the money, but they're a bit more frugal about what they spend their money on and don't want to overspend. Um, you know, if you think about the, the Middle East, we've got some amazing places, including Dubai. But if you asked 100 people, I think you get 100 answers for Dubai, for the UAE, for the GCC, about where they would consider to be the best. So I think, you know, Look at this list again next year or maybe in five years and you'll definitely see a different list and, and the Middle East will be on there. Yeah, I have to say, um, I'm looking back on the holiday that I had this summer. We went to uh, Mallorca. We went to Parma in Mallorca and we actually did very specifically go to a certain neighbourhood there that had uh, a good family offering, a decent playground, frankly, for the kids. And then we went to two cafes that were owned by the same people, the same business. And it was a it was a local business and we really we didn't pay tourist prices. And you're right, we as a consequence, we really did have that lovely sort of authentic experience. It was just the one day that we were in the town, um, but it really worked for us. And lots of people, when you say 100, 100 different answers, we've got lots of people getting in touch with us, Sarah, with their suggestions for the best neighbourhood in the UAE. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to say the best neighbourhood in the UAE from your point of view, where you can get a cheap coffee from somewhere that's not a chain, uh, Sarah, where would you go, do you think? Well, I think probably the marina area, although it is very touristy, there is still a lot of local businesses around there and you can get anything you want. So I think that's probably, and it's a focal point really, not only for tourists, but also residents in Dubai. Yeah. You know, I love to go to Old Dubai, I love to go to Alcacel Avenue, I like to go into Deira, Bird Dubai. But I think, you know, the marina's got a little bit of something that tells you that you're in 
in Dubai in the Middle East. It does. I mean, it's the it's it's oh, it's got the glitz, it's got the glamour, it's got boats, it's got water, and it's got um, anything and everything that you could ever want. Uh, Sarah, absolutely fantastic to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much. Really good fun, Sarah Pickford there from Travel Counselor. I'm just going to read a couple of the messages that have come through. Uh, one person here say, "I've had 30 years in Dubai. I've lived everywhere from Bur Dubai in the 90s, uh, Jumeirah and Umsakim, Meadows and the Palm, but the best of the best by a million miles is." Alberari. It's lush, green and unique and I'm never leaving. Uh, this next message came in. Uh, this is more of a Middle Eastern perspective. Gamayze. Gamayze in Beirut is one of the coolest groovy neighbourhoods in the whole of the Middle East. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Thank you very much indeed for all your messages coming in on what you think should be the coolest neighbourhood in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Quite a lot of debate going on. Uh, one person here uh, says, 30 years in Dubai, I've lived everywhere from Bur Dubai in the 90s to Jumeirah, Umsakim, Meadows and the Palm. But the best of the best by a million miles is Al Barari. It's lush, green and unique. I am never leaving. Stephen, though, or no, Fard says Garhood, a.k.a. J-Hood. It's all about the 214. Uh, really interesting. Sean Evers says Gameza in Beirut. If you're looking to go a little further afield in the Middle East, in his view, that is one of the coolest, grooviest neighbourhoods in the Middle East. Now, we've also been discussing farming on the programme today because while tech is definitely dominating the news headlines this week because of Jitex, uh, we wanted to mix it up a little bit and uh, we've been celebrating World Food Day this week. The UAE, of course, has a declared aim ahead of COP28 to transform its food systems and one farm looking for innovative solutions to food-related challenges is Camelicious. It's the camel milk farm uh, based here in Dubai. And a little bit earlier, I was delighted to say I was joined on the line by Dr. Peter Naji. He is farm manager for Camelicious. I started by asking him whether farming camels is a common occurrence. The project that we're doing is not really common. There are only few of such projects in the world. And definitely we are the first one who came up with this idea and he started doing this. But camel farming is nothing new. It goes back thousands of years. Sheep of the desert has always been very important for the people of the Middle East and also beyond. And because these creatures, uh, many things have not been done. And also camel milk has always been used for thousands of years by the nomadic people. They always consume this milk. However, what we started doing 16, 17 years ago, this is, was actually a new idea, to start a large-scale uh, milk production farm with camels. And at the moment, we have the largest concentration of camels in the world. Many times I ask the question whether these are uh, racing camels. And when I tell people, no, these are not racing camels, these are milking camels, they're pretty much surprised. So just to answer your question quickly, camel farming at the scale we do it is not very common, but it's gaining much more popularity now not only in this country, but also in the neighbouring countries as well. Is it difficult to milk camels? I mean, I grew up on a dairy farm. Cows are pretty simple beasts. They, they seem quite cool with being milked and they, they go into the milking parlour in nearly exactly the same order every single day. Is it the same with camels? Yeah, I would say the big lines are the same. And then once you know how to do it, everything is easy. But once you do it for the first time, then we had to face many, many challenges. 
And okay, many people were watching us and uh, many people believed that this cannot be done. Well, in general, and the local people, the Bedouins know very well that camels are very intelligent animal. So they really companion animals. They're very similar like horses would be for people who used to horses. So an intelligent animal can be trained and taught to do various tasks. And this is what actually we had done. We developed the technology, we developed protocols and we train and we constantly training our animals. And they have good memory. So once an animal is trained into this and we provide the, na the, the basics, what this species needs, then yes, they can be milked. Do you... I mean, obviously, it needs to be a sort of a commercial enterprise, I suppose, if, you, if you're running a, a business. Do they produce a lot of milk? Are they as uh, fruitful as, uh, as other sort of milking mammals like cows and, and goats? Uh, well, yeah, well, I can say it's th these things is always relative. The, you know, the high producing horse and freezing cows might produce above 30 to 40 liters. If you compare camel to this, this is relatively a smaller quantity because we're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten liters a day. So that's roughly the average. So compared to this is much less. But when we compare to other type of camels, we have the, what is so-called the two hump camels, which are not in this region. They only produce two liters of milk. So I can say that, yes, camels are moderately good milk producers. And we have individuals who can produce as high as 20 liters or so. Even the UAE organizing camel milking competitions for the local population and one of the years, the highest producing animals, uh, the winner was producing 26 liters. So that's quite a significant quantity already from a, from a creature like the camel. I mean, you guys have been running nearly for 20 years now. How many camels are you milking each day at the moment? Uh, we're milking above 2,000 camels each day. Wow. And this is changing, they're changing and fluctuating over the years. But roughly, this is our average. So it's a quite a good number. And we started with 25 animals 16 years ago. And you have a breeding program, I presume, where you find the good milkers and then you breed from them in, in the same way as any sort of farming uh, Yeah, business. definitely. In any breeding operation, this is the future. And that's, that's the way. We have very solid database, data recording. Without data recording, we would not be able to do proper selections. And based on those recordings, which are typically based on milk and also different uh, body creatures, phenotypes. Then we select the animals and we call what is, we, we do whatever is called selective breeding. So we, best, we choose the best females and the best males and we mate those animals, hoping that in the future generation, the genetic potential of the offsprings will be better and they're going to even produce more milks. And to do this, we use traditional methods and we also used modern technologies, uh, assisted reproduction as well, which helps to increase the speed of those kind of uh, breeding methods. Do you do cloning? Because I know that that's no. become popular. No, no. There's no, no, need. We, no, we don't do cloning. I must say our milk is 100% natural with animals kept in a natural way, fed completely natural ingredients and also the reproduction is in a natural way. So cloning we don't use. And I don't think cloning will be part of the everyday camel breeding for a long time to come. I know it's, uh, I know they do it for the racing camels, but they end up being worth, you know, like $2 million yeah. or even bigger numbers. So, so I know the, that that's where it happens. There is another technology which actually we use and the racing industry also uses, that is called embryo transfer. When we use a method to uh, gain multiple offspring from the best females which is 
uh, I would say it's much lower level of technology than the, the cloning. And these animals are conceived in a natural way. But it helps to increase the speed of the breeding program. We can reach something in five years instead of 25 years. So it has a positive effect and a good advantage. I mean, camel farming is a, you know, it's a wonderful cultural quirk for the UAE and and it's and it's brilliant that it's going ahead but one might argue or ask why do it commercially since it is so much harder than for example milking cows what is it that's that's great about camel milk or like why why try to get a hold of it yeah before I I want to speak a little bit about the benefits of camel milk I have to say something which is really forgotten these animals camels are the ones which are adapted to this climate so these camels are producing, are able to produce 10 liters of milk without technology, uh, with the, without which the cows cannot produce milk. So imagine the outside, we all know the outside temperature is 40, 45 Celsius in the summer. Camels totally tolerate this very well. The water requirement is much, way much less, 20 times less than the water requirement of a Holton freeze cows. We cannot produce milk in horse and cows without a proper cooling management and proper temperature management of the animals. Now, camels are absolutely adapted to this climate, so they are perfect uh, food producers, perfect milk producer here, and uh, and in other places where the camels are kept. So the way I'm looking at it, we have a pilot project. We actually just show other people the potential of what can be done with these species in the arid zone where these animals exist. So that's about camel farming. So I really believe in it, that it brings the good things to society and use this existing natural resource to produce very good quality food. Now here comes the food. What do you mean? What do I mean good quality? This is a milk. So what is the difference between camel milk and cow milk? In fact, there are very important structural differences. So the camel milk protein composition is very different from cow milk. So for this reason, there are also some technological consequences. So cheese production is more difficult, but there is a very important health issue. In, in modern days, many people develop uh, what is called protein allergy, milk protein allergy against cow milk. This problem doesn't exist with camel milk. So people who are not able to consume uh, cow milk and they look for alternatives. In Europe, usually they look for sheep and goat milk. Here in the Middle East, the perfect alternative is chamomile. And then this is one of the most important benefits and differences in the chamomile. Also, naturally, it contains less fat. And interestingly, even the fat content around 25 to 2.7% naturally, but after without adjustment, uh, the, the taste of the milk gives you naturally kind of a skim milk taste because of the structure, the cells, the micelles, the fat micelles are different in the camel milk than in the cow milk. So there are several medical benefits which is attributed. Some of them are proven, some of them are not proven, which also justify that uh, the camels are, are farmed and we produce in camel milk as well for the local population and also for export. Dr. Peter Nagy there, farm manager for Camelicious, giving us an extraordinary insight there into the world of camel farming here in the UAE. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8.
Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Good to have you with us this uh, Wednesday morning. I'm losing track of the days this week, uh, but it is indeed Wednesday. Plenty going on in the UAE right now, not least at the JITEX conference up at the World Trade Centre, keeping one eye on the roads there uh, in case you get a few snarl ups. But we're getting the... We're keeping our other eye on farming. Uh, We're doing it quite a bit on the programme this week because while tech is dominating the news headlines, we we did want to mix it up a bit. And uh, a particular controversy uh, has really caught my attention this week because animal rights activists are campaigning against a potential octopus farm in Gran Canaria. I'm joined now to discuss the topic by Dr Elena Lara. She's research manager for Compassion in World Farming. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really intrigued to know um, why an octopus farm, uh, well, I mean, let's start start from the preliminary. You know, why are people wanting to farm octopuses? I presume it's it's for food, is it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, for, it's for food. Yeah. I mean, uh, octopus product has become very popular in countries like US uh, or Japan and has been a traditional dish in Mediterranean European countries like Spain, Italy, Portugal. So there's a huge demand of octopus. And this farm, it's, it's, it's trying to cover that demand, you know, like make a business. It's, it's, a, it's a profit, you know, it's a profit um, business. I have to admit that ever since I saw that Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher, I, I've actually stopped eating octopus because you, the impression you get from that documentary is just how intelligent the animals are. How come people haven't wanted to farm octopuses before? How, how come this is such a sort of new idea? I mean, it's not a new idea. Uh, in fact, Spain has been trying to raise these animals in captivity for decades. You know, like uh, there has been like an investigation in the last 20, 30 years in Spain trying to raise these animals in captivity. And it was recently achieved. So it was because it was really difficult to close the biological cycle of these animals. So once they achieve, um, you know, the close and understand all the biological needs that these animals need in captivity, a company by this patent that the, the investigators create, and the intention was like um, to 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 raise these animals in intensive farm conditions. So once they had like the conditions, uh, they know how to uh, raise this animal in captivity. They want now to do it in intensive way. Why are you against that project, that farm? Well, there's a lot of ethical and environmental issues related to that to that farm. So we think that these animals are not suitable for farming conditions. You know, these animals we know in nature they are solitary animals, and we know that in intensive farms, you know, are characterized by high stocking densities. So these animals are going to suffer in these farms. So it's it's going to be stressful for them that can create like uh, territorial aggression behaviors, even cannibalism. And also these animals are intelligent and they need to interact with the environment. In, in the farms, the intensive farms, we know that the conditions are barren, tanks with no stimulation, with no, uh, it, it's just like um, barren tanks with, with anything else. So they are gonna suffer also in these conditions. And then from a sustainable point of view, we know that octopus are big predators in nature. So um, their diets, it's going to be, they are carnivorous animals. So their diets needs uh, to be like um, with, with animal protein. 
And in aquaculture, the animal protein comes from fish. So we are going to need to capture huge amounts of fish to feed these animals in farms. And we know that fish stocks are already overexploited. So we think that this is not a solution. You know, aquaculture should be focused on other kind of animals that are not carnivorous to solve the issue of our overexploited wild uh, fish populations. So I know that research continues into octopuses because they are the most extraordinary animals. How do we know that they're intelligent? How do uh, scientists figure which animals are more intelligent than others, for example? Do you quite literally set them tasks? Yeah, for example, yeah. So there's trials, experiments, also observations in nature when you can can see how the animal responds So some some. So some stimuli or how, for example, in nature, you can see that they are able to use tools or uh, interact with other animals to hunt. And then also the science uh, has like uh, working to, to explore the, the, the nervous systems of these animals. And we know now that they're very complex. They have also a cognitive system. So, yeah, it's the, the science is not just like a, it, you need to observe the 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 nervous system of these animals, but at the same time, it's it's observation, you know, like making trials, experiments, and observe these animals in the nature. I know that this farm uh, is attempting to go ahead in Gran Canaria. Do you think that uh, well, your, your, your organisation, Compassion in World Farming, plus all the other organisations involved in this campaign, do you think you're likely to have success or do you think it will go ahead nevertheless? Well, I hope we are successful, you know, because we are afraid that this is the first farm and we are afraid that this business or other countries or companies are thinking to do the same. And we think that this should not happen. So we see this like if we achieve like this farm does go ahead, it's like a precedent. If other countries or companies are thinking about to, to, to go ahead with the same idea. Uh, really interesting to speak to you and, and a really interesting story. I'm sort of trying to stay neutral on the subject, but I have to say just from my limited experience of watching that documentary, I have to say that um, I, I, everyone can probably tell which side the argument I come down on. Uh, but thank you very much indeed for joining me on the line. It's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Dr. Elena Lara, the research manager for Compassion in World Farming, explaining her opposition to uh, the potential octopus farm in Gran Canaria. Thank Thank you very much indeed for your time. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.